The I'm Fine podcast is produced by Lemore Media LLC and is run by Project Headspace and Timing. Project Headspace and Timing is a 501c3 that I started in 2017 after a veteran that I was a medic to decided to pull over on the side of the road and end his life. As an organization, Project Headspace and Timing works on veteran advocacy and veteran outreach. What that means is through the advocacy perspective, we try to connect veterans to other resources as early on into the process as possible. What that entails is early contact with veterans, forming a safety net with their family members, friends, and fellow service members, educating them on the resources, and when that veteran is ready to get help, we are there to make sure that they get the help that they need. The outreach aspect is put there to get veterans together to do productive and constructive things, whether it's out in nature, working with other businesses, anything to get them out around other veterans where those good conversations can happen if they want to have them. If you are interested in finding out more information about our organization, please visit projectheadspaceandtiming.org, our Facebook page, Project Headspace and Timing, or our Instagram, which is Project Headspace and Timing. And if you would like to donate to our organization, please visit our website, projectheadspaceandtiming.org, scroll to the bottom, and you will find a link to our Venmo. If you'd like to send us a check, our P.O. Box is P.O. Box 382, Mantino, Illinois, 60950. And if you'd like to sponsor or have any other questions, feel free to reach out to me at Eric P, P's and Paul, at projectheadspaceandtiming.org. On today's episode of I'm Fine, we are sitting down with someone who has been helping us tremendously uh, with our social media account. And in addition to that, she's also a licensed professional counselor and Army veteran, Melanie McComsky. Now, Melanie is trained in eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. And she's also a certified anxiety treatment professional, clinical trauma professional, and depression and mood disorder specialist. So we're going to get to know her, how she got into it, and we're going to pick her brain on today's episode. So thank you for tuning in. podcast with your freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional hosts, Eric Peterson and Brad Stozik. And then here we are. Episode three. Episode three. We're going to start every episode by saying what episode it is. I think we should. And we're going to look at each other in just sheer amazement. I wish you could stare in my eyes while you did that, but you really can't. I can, but... You wouldn't get the vibe. That's fair. From me, that's, unless I was super close to you. That's true. Which is one thing that Jake said to us is that if we sit on the same side of the table, we should also hold hands throughout the entire podcast. You can sit on my lap if you want. I think we should leave that up to like the listeners. Like if we get up to a certain number of downloads, we'll have to do a podcast where I'm sitting on your lap or you're sitting on my lap. Challenge accepted. I mean, let's be honest, we could talk about this for hours. Uh, <laughs> Melanie, we are really, really thankful to have you here today. I am especially thankful that you were able to post up so much positive stuff on our social media and everything like that. So I just want to thank you for taking a, taking some time out of your schedule to be here. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. And before we get into everything else, one thing that I just thought is really cool about you that you were talking about when we were getting everything set up was just how into 
Comic-Con and those types of shows that you're into <laughs> and, and everything like that. I never get a chance to go to them. And I always want to. And I always feel like I'm pigeonholed because I feel like the only characters I could be. Now I can be Shang-Chi, which is cool. Now I can be like somebody cool. But other than that, it was Short Round from Indiana Jones or <laughs> Data from Goonies. I feel like those are the only two dudes that I could be. Or any Mortal Kombat character. What are you talking about? <sighs> That's right. What? I didn't even think about any of that stuff. I guess you're right. I could have done any of those things. And then one of the things that I saw is that you came dressed as Scarlet Witch, the last yes. one that you went to. Yes. And which one was that? So I went to Fan Expo this year, which is previously known as Wizard World Con, I believe. Yep. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Their first year here is Fan Expo. And who all did you get to meet this year? Oh, so this year I met John Bernenthal, who was absolutely awesome. I got to meet Corey Feldman, who was exactly how you would expect him to be. And then I... Oh, Will Friedel. So he was Boy Meets World. Eric. Yes. Mm, yep. He took my phone and took three selfies of us. Was the nicest guy I've probably ever met. Was so down to earth. So cool. He's awesome. <laughs> I, oh, that is so, that is really cool. And I always yes. want to go to those shows. And I remember the one that I really kicked myself about is the last one where the last Comic-Con that was in Chicago that Stan Lee was at. Yes. Because like. You knew that he was getting a lot older and you saw that he was still going to these things. And I was like, I wanted to go so bad and I didn't. I wish that I did. So I would have gotten a chance just to talk to these people for like five seconds. But even any time I've ever met a famous person, I always feel like I know that I'm super rushed and I don't want to be inconsiderate. and sure. I don't want to be rude. Yeah. But it's always so nice to hear they're nice. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway. It was awesome. <laughs> so if you wouldn't mind, would you... When I first met you, I called you a unicorn. Yes. Because <laughs> you're a veteran mm-hmm. and you are a licensed professional counselor. Yes. And you are certified in like a gajillion things. <laughs> Can you just kind of tell us a little bit about your background as far as military and mental health? Yeah, definitely. So I knew I wanted to go to college. That was a big priority for me, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so I was like, okay, well, then I'll just do the Army. Like, I was very blasé about it. Like, it wasn't, like, necessarily a big, well-thought-out decision. It wasn't something I thought about my senior year of high school. So I just kind of went right for it. And so I got out and was like, okay, GI Bill, what do I do with it? I don't have a clue. So went right into the workforce. And actually, my first job out here in Kankakee County was at Indian Oaks Academy in Mantino. And I was very young at the time, went in there, had no idea what to expect, realized very quickly that I wanted to be in mental health psychology in some way to help better because I felt like I had no resources to help the kids out there. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to school for psychology. So I got my associates in psychology and I was like, okay, what am I going to do? So I was like, I'll just get the bachelor's. But then I took some time to not work in the field. So I was going to school, but doing different things here and there. And then when I was done with my bachelor's, I went and worked at Camelot schools and uh, was there for a while and was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and get my master's. So I did that. And then I worked for a couple years in the Joliet area doing community mental health. And then about a year ago, joined a private practice in Aurora. And then about three months ago, joined Life Stance in Bourbon A. So yeah, it was very much boom, 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 it feels like to me. Like I've been doing this for what feels like a long time. And my heart's been in it for a long time, which has been awesome. 
I feel like when it comes to, especially being involved in mental health to the degree that you are, mm -hmm. I feel like it also has to be incredibly exhausting. Mm -hmm. And just drawing from parallels from, from my side of things, you know, working with veterans one-on-one, -on -one, I find that I have an issue with self-care, being able to establish safe boundaries yeah. and making sure that I'm, I'm taking care of myself. Because I believe if you're the type of person, one, to join the military and to serve your time, obviously you understand that you're part of something bigger than yourself and mm -hmm. you're willing to contribute to something bigger than yourself. And so there's that ownership and that sense of care and pride. And when you extend that out to also then getting into mental health, was it easy for you to always be that type of person? Have you always been that type of person that people would come to and talk mm -hmm. to? How did you develop those types of skills? So it's actually funny. I was thinking about this when I was pondering the other day. And I was one of those kids who never made it when I was younger. So like tried out for the basketball team, fell, broke my arm, didn't make it. Tried for the cheerleading squad. That was a no. Ran for student council, got beat. Like I never fit in anywhere. Yep. And so I kind of became like the floater. And by becoming the floater, I realized that so many different types of people exist in the world. And so I was like, ooh, I like that. Could I do something with that career wise? And then I really like to listen to people. I can just sit there and listen to people's stories. I find them interesting. But then I also have a huge part of me that wants to help. So bring those together. There it is. That's amazing. That's really mm -hmm. cool. And then have you found yourself working with a, a decent amount of veterans? Yes. Or, okay. Yeah. And the fact that you can establish fairly early on that uh, you're a veteran yourself, that also has to help break down some of the barriers as far as trusting a mental health professional from the patient side of things. Would you agree? Correct. Yeah. Normally okay. when they are told that, you see a change in the face. Like, right. It changes. There's a shift of like, okay, well, maybe I could open up a little bit here. So it's yeah. helped. As far as all the things that you're certified in, the one yes. that I'm really intrigued by is the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. Yes. Can you just EMDR. kind of explain what that is? It's way easier to yes. say EMDR. <laughs> EMDR. Yes. So EMDR, it's actually funny. My last year of grad school going into internship, I was like, I got to find a niche. I don't want to just be a sit down talk therapist. I want to have a cool like modality that I have. So I researched and researched and EMDR kept coming up because I knew I wanted to work with trauma. I knew that was kind of my calling. And so I go to this training and I remember sitting there the first day and they start explaining what EMDR is. And I'm just sitting there. Oh, my gosh, I've signed up for like hocus pocus class. What is this nonsense that they're talking about? Yep. I spent all this. I was so angry. And and so I'm sitting there and I'm listening. And I'm like, okay. And then they split you off into your little groups. And this is where you start to dig into it deeper. And then you actually practice EMDR on other professionals. That's how you get trained. And so it was my turn to have it done to me. And that experience completely changed my life. And I was, I bought right in then there. I was like, oh my God, this is real. And so I was hooked right then and there, started using it as soon as I was certified and am now so comfortable with it and love it so much and has seen how well it does work that I don't see myself doing anything else. EMDR and me for life, we're going to be connected. <laughs> Are you familiar at all? With EMDR? I have never heard of that actually. So, okay. Before, what I'll say is I have experience with it in that 
I was involved in a pretty bad car accident years ago. So I was, uh, long story short, driving on the interstate and a work truck uh, veered into my lane and it did what's called a pit maneuver. So the work truck was in front of me, like the back half of the truck was lined up with the front half of my vehicle. And as it turned into me, it hit the front of my car, which caused me to bounce off a guardrail. And then I flew around the front of it. So it was actually kind of T-bone pushing me down the interstate. Right. It was a terrifying thing for me. And after everything was done, I actually, I, you know, I had some anxiety when it came to driving. I had some issues when it came to even kind of getting into my vehicle for a little bit. And I was recommended to try EMDR with a therapist. And when they first explained it to me, it sounded like some Mr. Miyagi, like they're going <laughs> to, he's going to rub his hands and he's going to hold it on your yep. body yep. and then you're going to be healed. <laughs> and I went into it with a little bit of skepticism, mm -hmm. healthy skepticism. Yes. And when I actually went through it, I personally was really surprised at how it brought a lot of emotions that I was feeling at the moment that I had that accident back to the surface and how much imagery, I guess I would say, it brought up. Like I remembered every single thing that was going on at the time. So would you mind kind of explaining what EMDR is and, and how it works? Sure. So what it is, is you use what's called bilateral stimulation. You can do this through several different forms. So there is a light bar. I use that, which is where you follow visually kind of a blinking light back and forth. There are theratappers. I had those out earlier where you hold on to them, they buzz back and forth. Or some people do self-tapping where they'll tap. So those are kind of the three modalities that primarily get used. And what it is, is you bring up kind of the worst part of the memory as you remember it, as you engage in the bilateral stimulation. And what that does is the gray area in the brain that holds depression, anxiety, all the different symptoms of mental illness starts to split back to black and white. And we see better functionality in the individual. So it's really about stimulating the brain, stimulating the body and taking you to that heightened moment and getting you through it and then getting you out on the other side so that when you look back to that, you're not so locked up and it's not so stored inside you. On the surface, just sounds so intimidating from the perspective of when it comes to talking about the hardest moment of your life or the most traumatic <laughs> moment of your life, I don't want to think about that shit. No. You know no, what I mean? No, so it's no. like to even get to that point, I feel like is a hurdle there, right? So, but you you actually have to you have to be able to to think about that moment for any of this to to really come to light. Is that one of the hurdles for for some people getting into it? Or what is your opinion on that? So, yeah, for a lot of people, the trust factor has to be there because sure. I'm taking you to your worst remembered moments. And so a lot of it is trust building just so that we can get really comfortable with each other. And then people just kind of get that moment where they're like, OK, I'm going to try. And I always tell patients the same thing, that this is something we can try. And if it doesn't work the first time, we can shelve it and come back to it later. You know, it's a tool. It's on the shelf. It's available. But you do really struggle sometimes because 
traumatic events aren't always fully remembered. So you've got some people who present and they're like, ooh, I know this trauma happened, but I don't remember. And so that requires a whole different step to kind of bring the memories back. But there's protocols for everything. There's a lot of workarounds in EMDR. So that's kind of what I've experienced thus far. Is this comparable to like a ketamine type of therapy or not really? Um, not really, but ketamine therapy has started to increase in use. They're, they're seeing a lot more people that are moving towards that. So from what I can tell thus far, it is also a very symptomatic, engaging experience. I do have some patients that are doing it concurrently with EMDR, and they've said that good results thus far. Yeah. So, And this is just yeah. for like extreme cases extreme of trauma. Extreme cases of trauma or okay. sometimes really extreme cases of depression. I feel like for a lot of people that are looking for different types of ways to get through something when it comes to mental health, like myself in particular, I had it in my head that, okay, as far as getting help is concerned, I'm going to try one thing. And if that one thing doesn't work, then nothing will work and I'm just going to stop forever. But as I continued on, I learned that there are so many different ways to go about dealing with whatever it may be that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And you can't you can't stop when the first thing doesn't work because you have no idea what's going to work for you. And there's right. so many different options out there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And, and when did he like is EMDR? That's pretty new. Right. Yes. Very much. Probably in the last 10 years, really gained ground. And then within the last five years, it just kind of exploded. So dumb question might be slightly offensive. Sure. When it comes to somebody that's visually impaired, mm-hmm. depending on the degree of that impairment, is is EMDR something that could still be feasible for them? Absolutely. Yep. They that's can cool. use the tapping. They can use the ferrotappers. We have a bunch of different modalities. Pretty much all impairments can be worked around with EMDR. There is a way that we can tweak, manipulate it to pretty much overcome anything. So another amazing. reason it's wonderful. Right. Mm-hmm. That, was actually, that was actually my next question. Yeah. Sorry. I Thanks, Eric. that from you. Yeah. I was just thinking of stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, me too. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, well, I think that in, in addition to everything else that you're certified in, do you have one particular facet of mental health? that intrigues you the most that you really enjoy being a part of, or is it just mental health as a whole that you enjoy? So I really like doing trauma work and I have found myself very much pulled towards the um, mood and personality disorders. That seems to kind of be where my interest is when it comes time to do my dissertation. I'm going to do something kind of within that umbrella. So that's really been the pull. Eventually, I would like to work exclusively with clients who have disassociative identity disorder, formerly multiple personality disorder. That's kind of my hone in diagnosis that I really want to work with long term. And when they change the names yes. like that, I mean, why did they change from multiple personality disorder to dissociative identity disorder? So I believe that it was kind of a mix of things. So first of all, there was kind of this stigma around multiple personality disorder versus something more clinical like disassociative. And then they leaned on that because a lot of it has to do with disassociative states. So Mm -hmm. when you are splitting you are disassociating into that other personality type. So it's kind of a mix of the two is why they made the decision. From like a clinical standpoint, Mm -hmm. so mental health in 
from not the clinical side, it's like frowned upon and people are like, don't talk about it. Is that kind of the same case from the clinical side where like, I don't know, like a surgeon or a practitioner, a regular doctor is like, oh, mm, mental health or just like collectively, is it all like everyone's kind of on the same page? Yeah. So it's really changed in the last five years. Mental health used to be so, shh, we don't talk about And now people are talking about it more and more and more. So I think more people are coming to have a seat at that table, which is awesome because you're seeing a lot of co-collaboration. So doctors calling being like, hey, can we get consent forms? I'd like to send, you know, patients over to you. So it seems like a lot more people are coming to the table. However, you do have moments where there are other professionals involved who don't, you know, believe in the mental health aspect. And you just kind of have to keep moving, I I say, because if we spend too much time there and too much energy, it ends up being lost where we can just keep trucking and people will jump on board as needed. So. It's been it's been awesome to see the expansion of of people getting how important mental health is and that it's such a big component. I've always said you go to the annual physical, you should do an annual mental health wellness check with a mental health professional. Same exact thing. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a good idea. I mean, if only it was a big deal in Vietnam. I mean, I, I just I don't understand why it took so long for mental health to be such a issue, even though there's been. Like I said, Vietnam, mm-hmm. World War One, World War Two. Why is it now just being recognized as a real problem? I feel like every generation, every new generation is willing to open up and talk about things that the previous generation might not have been willing to. And that could, of <laughs> course, be because of environmental changes and the times and all that other kind of stuff. But I mean... They used to call it shell shock, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a World War II veteran friend of mine. His name was Ray Ali since passed. And he was on the LSM 311 at the Battle of the Leyte Gulf, which is one of the biggest naval battles, uh, I believe, in World War II out in the, uh, in the Philippines. And he watched kamikaze pilots. He was up in the crow's nest. And he was watching kamikaze pilots come down on his ship and just taking guys out in front of him. And when he got back, they wanted to shock him. Like they wanted to put their electrodes on his head. They wanted to do all this crazy type of stuff. And some of that stuff was still like, I don't know, in medical, in the medical world up until sort of recently, like frontal lobotomies. I don't know. Those were still like practiced. I don't know. Or at least Mm -hmm. recommended. Yep. Like, I don't know when they stopped doing that stuff, but not a super long time ago, right? I think I want to say like lobotomies were fully off the table, maybe 19, between 1960s, 1980s. So yeah, it wasn't. Some of that stuff's crazy to me. Like, are you, are either you familiar with the precordial thump? No. No. Mm -hmm. So I was a paramedic for a little while and I did some uh, medic stuff overseas and there was, and I don't believe it's in. I don't know. Somebody can can correct me as far as like if it's still a protocol. But if I remember correctly, in a witnessed cardiac arrest, if you witness someone going to cardiac arrest, you could perform a precordial thump, which is when you make a fist and you hit them in the chest as hard as you can. Not as hard as you can, but pretty hard because the thought process is since you witnessed it and you immediately apply that pressure, I believe that it can essentially jumpstart the heart and i had a professor that actually did it once and so he was sitting in the back of the ambulance and he told us that a guy went into cardiac arrest in front of him and he just boom and just hit him right in the chest and he popped out of it 
it's insane that that stuff works or, or that there's a place for stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I, I always wonder as we continue to evolve where this stuff's going to continue to go. That sounds like the best happy accident of all time. <laughs> somebody just saw him like, do oh, something. Like, and just going to, oh my God, I'm going to write this up. I'm a doctor. <laughs> I have no idea. Give him the PhD. <laughs> I did, it's, that's crazy. But what you were saying about, you know, why it's always kind of been frowned upon. And I don't, I think it seems like it's an amalgamation of factors between traditional gender roles and uh, masculinity and the thought process of not talking about your feelings and just holding that stuff in. And then generations of that, seeing the generations before them go through that, but then turning to substances and then Mm -hmm. abusing, uh, you know, a whole host of different things because they couldn't deal with the things that they were trying to hold in. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the biggest hurdles that we have to overcome that it's so interesting to see is how do we get over that? And how do we make sure we're not making sure we're not making the same mistakes that the people before us were as far as like judging something because it's new and we might not get it. because I see things all the time that I don't get. And then I say to myself, am I turning into that old guy? It's like, just because I don't understand something, I'm going to make some excuse and just be mad about it and not try to learn anything about it. Yeah. So how did you get involved in being certified in all of these other fields? Sure. So for me, initially, I knew that I wanted to specialize in anxiety treatment, number one, because I have general anxiety disorder. So I get really, really anxious. Um, I wear a little thing around my neck when I get anxious so I don't pull up my cuticles. It's a little twisty. Oh, nice. I have really bad anxiety. So it's like, hey, I can go learn how to help other people and maybe I'll pick up some skills. So went, got certified in it, and it did. It helped me a lot. And then I can use that to help others. I really empathize with people who suffer with really bad anxiety because I know how crippling it can be. And so kind of started there and then started to notice a real uptick. I'd say last four months of the pandemic in depression diagnoses. So people coming in with symptoms of depression, I was like, Ooh, okay, there's a need went out and got the certification to work with that population. And then trauma is something that I always wanted to do. So that was also something that I got certified in. And when I did the depression, when it came with mood and personality as a sub training. So it's like, I'll just do it all that way. You know, I can help more people, the more specialties, the better, the more people you're open to help. So because you were a licensed professional counselor mm-hmm. before the pandemic. During the pandemic. During the pandemic. Yeah, which was a fun time to get licensed. That's yeah. baptism by fire, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, we. they said that the people that – the students that did the internship at the time I did were just facing something like unprecedented, like being thrown in as counselors in training in the middle of a global pandemic. Like no one knew how to navigate that. Holy shit. Yeah. So do you feel stronger in your field because of that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I got thrown right into the fire and I learned so much because of it. So much. It's actually like a blessing and a curse, actually. It sounds like. Yeah, it was a tough, it was a very tough time. Everyone was struggling and you just had to kind of strap up your boots and get into it as a mental health professional. And not everyone made it. I think I started with maybe, I don't know how many people I started with in my internship, but Maybe 30, 40% dropped off along the way. Like it was just too much. Not everyone makes it. It's it's tough. Especially coming in at the time that you did because it, mm-hmm. I feel like there wasn't enough of an emphasis. I heard in speeches given by certain governors and things like that, 
mental health during the pandemic was important, but I didn't hear it. I didn't hit hear as much of an emphasis on it as I thought there should have been mm-hmm. because the second that started and the second people started isolating, yes. like isolating is not good for me. So I'm just mm-hmm. like, if we're doing this on this type of scale, what kind of ramifications, like what are we going to see coming from this? And then towards the end or whatever you want to call this uh, point being, there was never a moment where we could all get together and just have that understanding where we all kind of look at each other and we're like, hey, we all just went through something kind of traumatic. Because what I kind of look at is September 11th. We're all here of the age where we remember probably pretty vividly exactly what happened that day. Mm -hmm. And what I do not forget is September 12th, walking outside, and all of a sudden, everybody was just like, yo, we're all neighbors. Just yes. we're, all, we're all together on this. Because, like, we all went through some shit. Mm-hmm. We all need to help each other out. I get it. You get it. If you're having a shitty day, it's don't worry about it. We're going to take care of each other. Like, right. I felt like there was that. I was also younger. I was also a kid. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, that's not so much the case. But through the pandemic, we never got to have that moment where everybody was like, hey, we're all in this together. It was mm-hmm. everybody's treading water. We're just trying to keep afloat. Mm-hmm. And everybody is still, you know, in this accordion effective. Am I doing OK? Am I not doing OK? And then we're all taking it out on each other. And it mm-hmm. seems like from the mental health perspective, it seems like a fucking perfect storm. <laughs> and when it comes to dealing with a lot of the other professionals, how are they doing? How are you supposed to be able to provide this type of care in the worst uh, type of event we've really ever seen, at least in our lives, Mm -hmm. and still be able to do your job? And how do you not bring your personal shit Mm -hmm. into your job? How are you able to do that? So it's a lot of self-care and you really struggle as a mental health professional because I don't care who they are or what they say, there's always that tiny, tiny piece in the back of your subconscious that's like, can I take one more client? Can I take one more person? Can I help one more person? Can I, can I make this difference? And you, you do, you have to put those self-care boundaries up and be like, no, because if I add that one more person, it takes away from everyone else who I'm helping right now. And they deserve me at a hundred percent. So you really have to work on the self-care piece. I struggle with it all the time, like ebbs and flows one week. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to do literally facials in my office and I'm going to like meditate. And then the next week, like the room's on fire. So I really, struggle with maintaining that. As far as keeping it out of home, I do a really good job. I went to um, a training on like how to work with trauma and how to kind of leave that so you're not carrying it with you. And it worked through this really cool exercise where you kind of take a deep breath in your office, you go to grab the doorknob and you kind of release all the trauma into the doorknob and just it stays there. And then you walk out and close the door and it's in your office and then you just don't bring it with you. And I've stuck to that every day. Like, I'm just going to leave it here. This is where it stays. It's safe in this office. I can go home. That's super interesting to me Yeah, because you have to make a point Mm -hmm. to really think about what you are doing and be present in that moment to tell yourself, I'm leaving this here. Yep. Mm -hmm. Because with the accessibility of everybody now, regardless of what your job is, the thought of of leaving your work at work Mm -hmm. seems like a dream 
Like it did for me for a while and it did for a lot of people that I know. And I didn't deal with the type of situations that you have to deal with. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty incredible. And that's something I never really thought about before. Has has the pandemic impacted your career field like it has other career fields where people are like, nah, I'm out, I'm done? So it has, but it's also opened up a lot more opportunities. So I think the trajectory for mental health right now over the next 10 years, I think the field's projected at like it's up to 40 percent. Like it's expanding. You've still got communities all over the U.S. that don't have a psychiatrist in that community. And so people are having to travel to different counties, things of that nature. Mental health needs people exponentially right now. But it's really hard to come into a field where you're so needed. It's intimidating because as soon as you're licensed, they're coming. People want you. They need you. And so it's about balancing kind of the two. So if people are interested, I definitely encourage them. Now's the time. There's a huge projection in this area, but just know that you are coming in at a time where because there is such a high need, it may be a little bit more challenging. I think with that too, for myself, because I never realized before I started going to therapy, how much work it was going to require of me. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went into it with that sort of thought process that like, I'm going to go in there and the therapist is going to say something and I'm going to be like, that fixed everything. I'm great now (laughs) and I never need to come back. (laughs) And I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take this pill and everything's going to be great. But what I noticed and initially it frustrated me at first, which was my own fault, was like the therapist's because I'd, I'd seen different therapists. I would see a therapist and sometimes we just, it wasn't there. I would shop around. I would find another one until I found the one that I use now, who I have a great relationship with. I've been seeing for like a year and a half, two years now. But she would give me things to do. She would yeah. tell me like, these are the things that you need to practice and mm-hmm. you need to make time in your schedule to practice because you're only seeing your therapist for X amount of hours uh, a week, a month right. or whatever. Right. And then what are you doing the rest of the time? You're just saying, OK, that's all the mental health help that I need. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just come back to this in another month or something like that. Right. But it's like it's a perishable skill, yes. just like anything else. Right. And it's really important to do the homework with therapy because that's how you're going to see the most progress. So it's really kind of confusing and hard as a therapist when you do have patients, clients that come in, like, as you said, once every couple of weeks and like, well, nothing's changing, nothing's changing. Well, did you utilize the following resources? Well, no. Well, then what did you expect to change? You have to do a little bit of the the work on your own. And that takes, you know, resilience and motivation. And sometimes you really have to dig freaking deep for it, but it's essential to the healing process. It really is. You've gone through some therapy too, right? Have you Quite been? a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually have not. I was the type of patient where I would go and they would give the exercise. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to yeah. go because I went weekly. So yeah. I was like, dude, I'm not going to. But yeah, I, I can second that if you don't do the exercises, it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> because I have. I've cycled through multiple therapists. Mm-hmm. Well, and some of the some of the homework assignments I would get would sound so simple initially. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize was because uh, one of my best friends, he's a physical therapist and, and he would talk to me too about how frustrating it is because in a similar fashion, he would give a patient these, Hey, do these things mm-hmm. before I see you again. And you right. need to work on these things. And they would give you a very small movement to do mm-hmm. in which you're not understanding from the patient perspective is 
when you master this small movement, then you can take a step above and then you can take another step above. You're not going to make that huge jump. Like we think, like I thought that I would make, Mm -hmm. which is why I pulled back from therapy so many times. Yep. I would start going and then I would be like, this isn't working because I wasn't doing shit outside of therapy. I think that's part of like human gratification though, because as, as humans, especially in like a society where things are at your fingertips right now, we want results right now. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to go to therapy for a year, right? right? You don't want to do that. Nobody wants to do that. And again, stigma thing like, oh, Hey, I got an appointment. Oh, for what? Oh, I don't, I don't want to say. And I bring it up in conversation not to be like oh, let's talk to my therapist but i bring it up from a, a way where i'm just like trying to make it normal like yeah. if you bring up that you, you were talking to your therapist and they gave you something that really helped you out like yeah talk to me about it yeah you know what i mean i want to hear about it i think it's a good thing yep and and the struggles that people have to go through now when people talk about like a midlife crisis yeah right what do you think a midlife crisis is Ooh, I think it's a combination of factors. So I think when we hit that period, it's looking back on the past, looking ahead at the future. And it's kind of that combustion of I'm going to play every regret I've ever had really quickly through my head, mm-hmm. but also kind of try and look towards the future. And that sounds complicated in and of itself. Boom, midlife crisis. So because I feel like I'll be I think I'm going to be 35. I think I don't know. I didn't even break my 30s yet, dude. I gotta ask my wife. <laughs> I don't remember that kind of stuff. But I think that uh when it comes to like the the idea of a midlife crisis and and people would mislabel somebody as having a midlife crisis because let's say they would quit their job or or take a sabbatical or whatever and go mm-hmm. travel the world. Mm-hmm. And those are pent up things that you wanted to do. Yeah. I don't think it's so much like a midlife crisis as much mm-hmm. as it is mentally you were suppressing something mm-hmm. and you needed to get out there. And then when you deal with some sort of struggle, like taking yourself and, and putting yourself in a new environment, taking a month trip in Europe by yourself or something like that. You're intentionally putting yourself in some sort of kind of struggle like a like situation Mm -hmm. because I think subconsciously, you know, you're going to benefit from it. You know, you're going to come out of it with a better understanding of yourself and a stronger understanding of yourself that you don't necessarily have initially. I think for me, I'm very thankful that I had the ability to travel when I was younger in the military. The biggest thing for me was going to the Philippines when I was like nine, because I got to see another world and I got to see how hard some people actually have it in comparison to how hard I thought I had it, which warped, which changed me right there off the bat. But I think that now I'm just seeing a lot of people that are, it just seems like, I don't know, it's, it's pent up. Mm-hmm. Whether it be like aggression, frustration, everything from the pandemic, you have all these people that are quitting, changing jobs yes. that people are talking about because mm-hmm. after the pandemic, either your employer didn't give a shit about you or you realize you didn't give a shit about your employer. Yes. The Rather, Great Awakening. The Great Awakening. <laughs> yes. And everybody's like, I'm quitting and doing something completely different. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And so what do you like? What do you think that is? I think it was a combination of things. I think it was kind of like a stress response, but then also there's kind of that 
secondhand fear through living through a pandemic, watching people pass away that kind of pulls that core of you that's like, there are these things I want to get out there and do. It's very similar to when someone very close to you passes away. And all of a sudden, it's not abnormal to have some of those backhanded desires come to the forefront. And it's like, okay, well, if this person passed away, I got to get moving on all the things I want to do. So I think collectively, people were looking at that. It activated that part of the brain. And people are like, I'm going to prioritize happiness and doing what I want. So we'll see what the after effects of that are. The other thing too that changed a little bit through the pandemic was bringing virtual things, doing things virtually. Are you for that, against that, both, neither? Oh, gosh, that's tough. So initially didn't like it. Like it was so awkward to me to do therapy and counseling on the computer. Like they're there. It it was so (laughs) awkward. Didn't like it at all. Um, But I've gotten more comfortable with it and I can understand why patients like to do it from the comfort of their own home. I fully, fully get that. So I think it, it it's really, it's the direction we're headed there. There's so many trainings, especially in the field of mental health right now, specifically on how to work with clients virtually. So they're obviously laying out a platform for the future. So I don't see it changing. Plus a lot of states during the pandemic did make changes to like the mental health bills. And so telehealth now is covered at a lot higher rate than in-person counseling. So another part that I think is going to influence that change. I don't think that's just mental health though. Cause I think that's all. Yes. Cause even as going to school to be a teacher, dude, I have a class just devoted to like technology and online teaching, which sucks. Right. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't agree with online okay. school, but that's just me. I don't, I'm old soul. I don't like learning new technologies and stuff, I guess. You are the youngest person at this table. I said soul. I said soul. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an old soul. (laughs) What you do when it comes to like my issue with learning things online is just it's with me. And it's that I have a problem holding myself accountable. And that's my whole problem with doing things online. Like virtual meetings with my therapist didn't really change anything for me, if anything, I felt a little more comfortable because like she said, I was sitting in my house. Like I didn't have to drive to your office because like whenever you go to like a doctor's appointment, Mm -hmm. don't you kind of get like a little more anxious? Like maybe your beat, your blood pressure's up like a a little bit more or something like that. Yeah. If I'm going into a therapist's office, sometimes I'll get a little bit, I don't know, maybe just like a little bit of anxiety. But when I'm at home, I'm in my bedroom, like I'm in my element, like it's not so bad. It's easier for me to kind of open up about things because I'm in a pretty safe place. The environment matters. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm just an open book and I just tell everybody anything because I'm more of like a, I feel more comfortable sitting down and being face to face with somebody. I think that's just, it's, that's just a comfort thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely feels more comfortable having conversations with people face to face. Oh, Mm -hmm. for sure. And that was something that was kind of taken away again. During the fucking pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Like we didn't have that ability to. And yep. like you said before, you kind of forgot how to talk to people yeah. face to face. Like yeah. I forgot how to. And I developed a little bit. Well, I'd always had a little bit of anxiety. And then through talking to my therapist, we kind of worked through what it was and and all of the different things that added up to it to result in this social anxiety disorder. Because so many people would tell me. When I started talking about it more, people wouldn't believe me at first. And they would believe me. They would just be like, well, you do so many things out in public. You know, you do this, that, and the other. And I'm like, I know. It's 
terrible for me inside Mm -hmm. sometimes. And my wife sees it the most. My wife understands like how hard it is for me because it's different in situation to situation in that if I have a specific goal, like if I'm going to a really big event and I have something I'm doing at that event, like actively, like I'm going there because I have to speak at this time. I have to do this. Like it's not as bad. But if I'm just there with my family, not doing anything, those are the worst times for Mm -hmm. me because now my mind's just bouncing around thinking about every possible situation that could potentially happen and then seeing other people that are out there and wondering about how I need to address people, how I should talk to them. What if they say something to me and I don't say this right? I went to uh, Merchant Street Music Fest in Kankakee not too long ago, and it's an amazing, amazing festival. And somebody was walking by in a crowd that recognized me and said hey to me while I was having a conversation with another person. And I looked up for a quick second and saw that person waving as they were walking by, but I didn't get a chance to acknowledge them because I was talking to somebody else. And I felt like a piece of shit just for that little moment. Mm -hmm. And then I was like just sitting there thinking about it for a while afterwards. And again, I had to pull things out from like my therapist, Mm -hmm. just like calming myself down that it's not that big of a deal that you're stressing about all of these things that aren't that big of a deal. But I feel like more people do that kind of thing than we realize. Oh, yeah. So what are some of your tips? Because you post some really good stuff (laughs) on our social media account that gets shared and a lot of that stuff gets shared. So, I mean, what are some of the the easiest things, not necessarily easiest, but just least labor intensive things that you think people can do? Yeah. And I love talking about this early on with people because this is what they're looking for. Like these tools that they can use anytime, any place that can kind of help in the moment that aren't requiring, you know, AAA batteries and the whole production. Mm -hmm. So I think right now, because we're looking at a lot of anxiety, it's really important for people to be aware of whether or not they're grounded. So in those moments where you're feeling highly emotive across the board, just the five, four, three, two, one. So five things I can see, four things I can touch, three things I can smell, two things I can taste, one thing I can hear. So you're going through the five senses that kind of brings you back down. You're paying attention to your body and it kind of just really makes you intuitive and aware of your environment, which is naturally going to help you calm down. So I really recommend that people always use the five, four, three, two, one skill. Another good one is shocking your vagus nerve. So, oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> right. So we have a vagus nerve that runs, I believe, from the brainstem all the way down neurologically. And some people's can end up damaged. You can be born with a weakened one. And it's all about that central nervous control. So if you're really sitting there and you're super anxious and we're like shaking, stomachache, like the really physical symptoms of anxiety are really prevalent, you can go and you can turn on on ice cold water and just kind of run your wrists under it. Or you can go grab ice cubes, hold the ice cubes in your hand, and it just kind of shocks the nervous system. And then your vagus nerve is alerted and it's like, oh, okay. And it brings you back to that soothing time. So I always recommend, you know, having ice available, cold water available. Another really good one for anxiety is really taking the time to take that deep breath and then doing progressive muscle relaxation. So that's a deep breath in, deep breath out, and then another deep breath in, but you're tightening your entire body the second time. And then as you breathe out, starting at the 
top of your head and going down, you start to release the muscles with that breath. Breathing work is so important. I thought it was all garbage when I first came in. I was like, oh, breathing. Yeah. No, breathing like for real is so important to coming down when you're highly emotive across the board. It's one of my favorite pastimes, actually. Breathing. breathing. Yes, yep. breathing's fun. I didn't think that breathing was such a big deal either mm. until I was introduced yeah. to Wim Hof. And then I started reading like some Wim Hof stuff. And if you're unfamiliar, I'm not sure what where he's from. It's one of like the Nordic countries. But he is he he practices these breathing techniques and then he like goes underwater in like freezing cold temperatures for like a super 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 long time Mm -hmm. and he does all of this other type of crazy crazy feats and he attributes all of it to his breathing yeah which is amazing yeah like he hiked i don't think it was everest it might have been but he did it wearing like shorts and like no shirt and all this other crazy shit. And he was the one who always, who got me into start taking like cold showers more okay. often. Yep. And, also great for your vagus nerve. And I found that they are pretty relaxing if you can get into yep. it. Yep. Because it took me a while mm-hmm. to actually be able to do that. Because they used to prescribe cold showers. Like doctors <laughs> used to tell you to take cold showers, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the theory behind that is what? So the theory behind that was, again, to kind of shock and alert the senses and the system for like people who were experiencing like lack of feeling connected, you know, feeling that high again emotion. The goal is to kind of, you know, alert people and awaken them in that moment to kind of see if you can come back down. And there is, there's a lot of value in that yeah so with all the like you were just talking about like symptoms of self anxiety does that come with the good anxiety too or is there a different type of like I guess symptoms that you would have like buying a house or something yeah so positive anxiety I think manifests differently for everyone so some people they get that positive excited anxiety they can follow through whatever it is and it's good other people the lines get crossed. So they get really happy, excited. And then some of the tougher anxiety starts to creep in. So always say, even if you're like positive, good, excited, still do the grounding, the five, four, three, two, one, similar to um, people who struggle with focus or have ADHD. I always encourage them to use grounding skills as well, because it's a way to take that excess energy and that excess emotion and just kind of come back down a little bit. In the five, four, three, two, one. Can you go over that one more time? Yes. So you can combine it any way you want. All you're looking at is the five senses. So it's five things that you can hear in the room. Check off hearing four things you can see, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. And you can combine that any way you want. But the goal is to go through each one of your senses, identify those things. And then as your brain shifts and starts to do that, you tend to come back down a little bit. So a lot of people will use that in situations where you're just so highly emotive that you can't think straight. I never heard of that before. I want to try that. I haven't either. That's a really cool idea. So it's supposed to like bring you back in the moment essentially, right? Like, okay. Yeah. Bring you back in the moment. And then rainbow breathing is my favorite breathing exercise. A lot of people with anxiety that I've worked with have used it and loved it. All we do with rainbow breathing is you can kind of take a sit back. Some people will keep their eyes open. Some people keep them closed. It really doesn't matter. And you're just kind of taking those breaths. And then you imagine that you're tracing a rainbow. And so as you come into the loop, you're taking the breath up 
And then as you come down, you're going out. And so you're doing each of the colors of the rainbow and that's regulating your breathing and kind of the imagery with all of that really helps people come down. So rainbow breathing is another one that I highly recommend. Wow. It's, I'm definitely going to put that in my toolbox. Yes. For rainbow sure. breathing is awesome. And it seems like so many of these things kind of revolve around the central idea of just being present. Yes, because if you're right. not present, you're not functional. So anything else we try and apply might not stick. That definitely makes a lot of sense, too. Because yeah. I have a hard time. That's the biggest thing that I've been practicing is understanding how to be more in the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a dad, it's easier because when it comes to like being a parent, you have, is it son? Son and daughter. Son and yes. a daughter. Yes. So all of us here have two kids. Yes. We understand how like hectic and crazy that can yes. be. <laughs> and everybody from the second you were pregnant to now, mm-hmm. every parent tells you what? It's going to go by so fast. Yes. It's going to go by so, oh, so fast. And then you start seeing it. And you start recognizing those moments where your kid's having this thought on their own. They're having this conversation with you. And you're like, I, I was just changing your diapers yesterday. Like what happened? And to be present in the moment was something that, that I recognized early on in the times where it was hard to be a parent Mm -hmm. because those late nights, the times where you don't want to get up, the kids are, the kids are sick and it's been, you know, X amount of weeks, months, whatever, without any sleep, uh, all of those times. And then you wor- you're, you're working in addition to all of that. You finally come home and your kid wants to play with you. Mm-hmm. And so many times you want to dismiss them. So yeah. many times you're like, I need this time to myself. Mm-hmm. But those are the times where you, you have to do those things because right. that's how you make the time stretch out a little mm-hmm. bit that's how you be present in the moment yeah. and now with cell phones and social media it's exponentially harder to be present in the moment i see i, I have a really hard time i'm i'm on my phone quite a bit okay. but i could also put it down I, I feel like people have a really hard time of like disconnecting from it like an addiction yeah. or would that be like, too exaggerated kind of a term? but like you don't i get it if you want to take one picture of whatever you're doing that's fine but do you really need 278 pictures of the same event? But not just that. I mean, I, I don't know. It's not just that so much for me as it is creating this false sense of self, which I feel like I could easily get into the habit of doing or other mm-hmm. people can get in the habit of doing in that portraying your life to the world and saying, this is my life. But like, mm-hmm. it's not all of your life. Right. And now you're falling victim to thinking that you have to be this person that you're portraying on social media. You can't actually talk about the things you're really feeling mm-hmm. because now you're chasing that, 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 what that dopamine release, yep. right. That, yep. that you do get yep. when you post something on social media and people are engaging with you, like that's affecting you yes. chemically. Yes. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because an article came out, I want to say roughly six months ago that correlates now the fact that so many people are using filters on like their faces, that it's kind of twisting that inner self-esteem and sense of security because you're taking a filtered photo, you're posting it, you're getting the positive reaction, but then you're stepping outside and you're not that filtered face. You, you are what you look like. And so social media in general has really presented these 
kind of open doors that can go left or right with your mental health. Because if you are so used to seeing yourself through filtered lenses, the first time that that lens drops, it's like, (gasps) and that's tough to deal with. So yeah, that's one of the downsides. I feel like we've really seen uptick within the last years, the use of filters, people, you know, present only what they want others to see versus what's really happening. So you have to take all social media with a grain of salt. You really do. But, and that's easier for for us, and I say us because we were born without it. Right. Yeah, correct. But for like yeah. kids, young adults, yeah. I couldn't imagine if I was a teenager and then you had all the filter shit at that time and you're sitting there thinking, oh, this is how I need to look, but that's not how I really look. Yeah. Like what kind of issues is that going to cause? Because I yeah. know I read a study a couple of years ago just about suicide and depression mm-hmm. amongst teen girls. Yeah. And it was way worse than I could have ever imagined. Mm -hmm. And with social media, I can't fathom how difficult that makes it for like teenagers, for kids. You know what the worst part is? It's it's not just teenagers. It's younger. Oh, yeah. I have a a niece who's uses that. And she's like, I think 10 or something like Mm -hmm. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. And it's so crazy with the filters. You get in, it's easy to get sucked into it because mm-hmm. my daughter, my oldest is uh, is five and she loves the filters because she can look like a cat or a dog right. or yeah. whatever. Panda. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. But when you start getting into those ones where it like makes you look more attractive or, or takes Flattens out the, the flaws. Wrinkles. Yes. The second I saw that, I thought that was fucked up yeah. just because- you're sitting there and that's not what you look like. Yeah. And because it looks more favorable, you're telling yourself, oh, well, this makes me look better. And then you're setting some weird expectations in your own head about it. And then people like it and yeah. that reinforces it. Ugh. You know those cool filters that they have? I just call them my mirror. Like those are the filters because best picture. You know what I'm saying? Oh, the mirror. <laughs> Damn. Well, but then again, I'm blind. So. <laughs> oh, that's fair too. I forgot. So to me, I'm I'm the next Brad Pitt, I'm pretty sure. Ooh, I can see it. Like Brad Pitt now? Brad Pitt still looks really good though. Okay, so oh, Brad Pitt a little bit doughier. A little doughier. Okay. A little doughier. Like a little squishier. Value, like a great like value. Though. Brad Pitt, more to love. Like we were talking about earlier, <laughs> which I don't think we ever talked about in the first episode. What's that? On whether or not you're Daredevil. Yes. 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 But you're not. No. That bummed me out. That was one of the first things that I was one of the first things that I asked. I'm close. Do you get that asked to you a lot if your other senses are heightened, by the way? Yes. And just to clear that up, that is not true. Yeah. It just seems that way because people who are vision impaired or blind, we rely heavily more on our other senses, Mm -hmm. hearing, smelling, right? It's because the first time I met him. I just, I threw a bottle of water at him like super fast. (laughs) And he's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I caught it. He did catch it. Oh, that's awesome. With chopsticks. But not because he's, not because he's daredevil. So (laughs) when you talk about the different things that should be done, like taking social media with a grain of salt, Mm -hmm. I agree. But as far as I know, there's no fucking class as a society. We're just kind of like, good luck. Yep. And we're just sending young teens out there that are trying to figure out who they are. And with all the anger and everything else that's out there, what do you think can be done? Is it like Pandora's box? It's just open now? Yeah, we. I mean, we kind of have. And that's why it's really important that we get mental health in the classrooms. Like there needs to be a 30 minute 
period set aside every day where we're talking about these issues and we're bringing forth the stuff that the kids are going through. Because what we went through when we were in high school compared to what the kids are going through today is freaking black and white. And we haven't caught up with how to handle that. And so we need way more mental health in schools. We need way more professionals in schools. We need to be able to do kind of the earlier interventions, help people sooner, quicker. It's really fascinating to me that when parents get sent home with a baby, you're given a pamphlet that talks about the postpartum and things like that. I also think that every parent should be sent home with what's called the ACE scores. So the ACE scores reflect birth to age 18. So it's everything you go through in childhood that can potentially impact your mental health. So it talks about how like moving multiple times can have an effect, not having your basic needs met, which would be a roof over your head, food and clothes. It kind of goes through this checklist of things that can impact you. And I think parents need that information because maybe that would plant the seed of to how imperative those years are because some of the stuff that's on that list I see happening a lot more as part of a cultural shift. And so that's really challenging as well. Could you give like an example? Sure. So something that I see a lot of that can be kind of tough on the mental health of an individual later in life is a lot of parentification of kids. And so what that is, is giving kids responsibilities that belong to adults. The biggest way we see this is with 12, 13, 14 year olds being told, hey, you're responsible for watching your three, five and seven year old after I do this. I've got to work. Putting people in roles at that age they're not ready for really changes the way that their mental health gets shaped moving forward. But we live in a society where both parents have to work in the home. Things are challenging. Daycare, expensive. So I can understand how backs are against the wall, but also people don't know that. So how do we get that out there? We inform them. So it's really about communicating that and getting that point across because people, I think, are engaging in things that they don't even realize long term could be harmful. Oh, definitely not. Because I know I've done plenty of things that I thought. I didn't think that there was any harm in like Mm -hmm. from what you were just bringing up in my mind, I think it's a good thing because now you're a little older. I'm trusting you with a new responsibility, which is Mm going to give you a new sense of pride. Mm -hmm. But as far as how that's shifting things, what kind of things are they seeing as far as what that does to that 12 year old, 13 year old? Sure. So some of what they're seeing is that this is an essential growth period. You have to remember the brain isn't fully developed until you're 26. So going through those stages where you're supposed to be a kid and building intuitions and exploring when your focus is reshifted to, hey, this is your role. You're responsible for this, this, and this. That can build anxiety that worsens as you get older. It can cause you to not have a sense of self because you were stripped away of those kind of investigative years when you were supposed to be finding out who you were. Some people can really struggle with responsibility later in life because it's like, I've had responsibilities since I was 12, 26. I'm burned out. Like this, you know, I see my peers around me that are just coming into adulthood and I've been living that for an additional 10 years. So it can have all these long-term effects that we really don't think about because I, I definitely understand how people look at it as giving more responsibility and could put that positive look on it. I totally get that. But long-term, we really are seeing that the the latter's happening. And just in your opinion, is that possibly why so many veterans have a lot of mental health issues? Because we come, like I joined when I was 18, mm-hmm. right out of high school, still yeah. a kid pretty much. Me too, yeah. 
the amount of responsibilities you get as an 18 year old from being in, cause I tell everybody, I was like, yeah, I grew up real fast. Yeah. They're like, why'd you get married so young? Well, dude, I, I grew up fast. I don't yeah. know. I, so is great it, question. do you think it has an effect on Absolutely. The mental health? Absolutely. It's, it's a completely different mind swap when you're in such a sensitive age. Like yeah. a lot of people, when you tell them the brain isn't done to your 26, they're like, what? I thought it was done when you were like 12, 13. No, like it's your mid twenties before your brain is fully formed. And so everything that happens in those first 26 years is so essential to who you become later on down the line. The biggest struggle that I've seen vets overcome is that transition from service to civilian. That is the hardest gray area to navigate in the world. And a lot of it requires, you know, going through all the conditioning you go through in boot camp, you know, taking down all that stuff, really kind of getting back in tune with how you want to live your life. And so it is, it's a massive hurdle to overcome. Yeah. I'm I think I have one leg over that hurdle right now. I'm still kind of in the process of trying to figure out, cause that was my, my biggest thing, you know, having a a sense of purpose and having a job to getting out and they're like, Oh, Hey, thanks yeah. for your service. See you later. But, and then at the same time you wanted, you were like, when you're getting out, I'm not, I don't say you isn't just you, but yeah. like when you're ready to get out, you're like later. Yeah. You're and ready to get out when you're on your way out. They're like, here's some pamphlets on mental health or here's the some rug. pamphlets. I'm getting some yeah. help. And yep. where do they go? The bottom of a rock, duffel yep. bag, tough yep. box, never to be seen again. Yes. Because I feel like they don't emphasize enough importance on it, on mental health. The only thing I can remember from like, I don't know if in the army is the same, but in the Marine Corps, you go to like separation platoon, you do like a week of basically readjusting to civilian life again. They teach how to write a resume. Are you that, talking about when you demob or are you talking about just when you get out? When you get out. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get out, when you sit, like it's called SEPS platoon, like just okay. separation platoon. And it's basically like, this is how you write a resume. This is what the job market looks like right now. Not one word about mental health that entire week. They teach the Marines how to read then? Dude, I'm I'm working on it. All right, it's hard. I I'm up to Dr. Seuss books now. So. Hey, not bad, man. I'm proud one of you. Fish, Good for fish. you. Thanks, man. <laughs> I oh, I can't <laughs> count yet, so that one's still off the table. But I'm getting there. I think one <sighs> thing that I talked to you about before was the demobilization process in general. Yeah, always to me, and I don't know. Maybe it's changed now. It, it, it maybe it's changed now because I I got out in 2011, but when I mobbed, I was infantry and I mobbed. I think it was like two months and they go through all of these different things to really set your mind for what you're going to be ready for. When you go to mm-hmm. boot camp, like I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, when I went to <laughs> Fort Benning, they break you down. They yep. work so hard yep. to try to break you down and rebuild you. When you demob, it's like, I don't know, a week or something. Like you mm-hmm. go in and you sit down with like a mental health professional. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the issue for me. You're sitting down with this person. They're asking you about your drinking habits and if you're thinking about killing yourself. And you know that if you tell them what's going on, you're going to be sitting here for another week and everybody else is going to be with their family. So what are you going to say? Right. You're going to be like, I'm fine. Everything's great. And you're out of there. And then six months go by and you're like, I think I got something. I think I got a pamphlet or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's almost too late sometimes. And I don't know how. They can change the demobilization process. I really don't, but I don't feel like there's enough of a focus on that mental health thing either. Like you said, I think there's so many facets that they don't pay attention to, like nowhere in the 
exiting of leaving the military, do they explain to you, like for me personally, my biggest kind of trip up when I became back in a civilian life was the first time I took a civilian job and my coworkers went to the manager, tattletale. I didn't know what the hell to do with that. I was like, whoa. I was like, what? Blue Falcon? Like, what the shit? Like, (laughs) And you freeze, but that's not in the pamphlet. They don't tell you what to do with that. And so there's so many facets that you don't even think about and you don't know you're going to eventually hit. And then it starts happening. You're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? So they, they tenfold need to improve with that transition because you yeah. just get thrown out to dry. Well, I think, I think the problem is where it starts because again, when you join the military, you're, you become just a number. You're yeah. no longer an individual. Yeah. You're a number. And mm-hmm. I think that's the problem. Yeah. At but, least a start. Well, the one thing that I got out of the military in a positive way, and it sounds terrible, but what I found in my time in was we were all equally worthless and there was something <laughs> That was actually comforting about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the respect was earned yes. by your work. Yeah. And it didn't matter as far as anything that made you different from the person to your left or your right. Mm-hmm. And so that was the good part of it. But yes, I mean, I, I definitely agree that it also caused some issues there. But what Melanie brought up that I 100% agree with and didn't even think about was the first job, the first few jobs I had when I first got back. Yeah. Because you can be yourself in the military because you are around your brothers and sisters yep. 100% yep. of the time. Yep. So you're not going to fake shit. Right. I mean, again, I know common experiences, uh, you know, common sense is common experience. Everybody's experiences may vary, mm-hmm. but that was my experience. You are going to be yourself. And depending on the nature of your deployment, depending on the nature of your job, Mm -hmm. if you know that there's a good possibility that you or somebody in your squad, team, platoon, whatever, may not come home from this, the little shit doesn't really matter as much. So you're able to be politically incorrect. You can Mm -hmm. say whatever you want. You don't have to worry so much because everybody knows we are all different colors here and it's totally fine because we're all doing the same job. And if that Humvee's on fire, I'm gonna pull you out of it and vice Mm -hmm. versa. So it's fine. You go back home, you're like 50% yourself at your job and you're already in the HR department. Like you're already getting written up for something. You're like, fuck, I didn't even say, like I didn't even give you 75% of me. I gave you maybe 50 and I'm getting in trouble for that. (laughs) And so what I got in the habit of is I just went like on cruise control, mm-hmm. like for for a few jobs. Yeah. Like I wasn't being myself, and yeah. I found that that was making me fucking miserable because yeah. I wasn't able to be myself for like mm-hmm. eight, nine, ten hours a day. You know what's crazy? I think joining the military at such a young age for me, who am I? Am mm-hmm. I what the military made me, or like? Because I don't think I ever had time to figure out who I was. Because you keep talking about like being yourself, being yourself. Yeah. Who am I? I have no yeah. idea who I am. And I think I'm still trying to figure that out. I think a lot of people are, though. Yeah. I, I think a lot of issues that people have, it seems like, from the unprofessional side, stems from trying to figure out what it is that makes you you. Because yeah. we want to be unique. But we also have a lot of things that we like to do that are accepted socially or that they're the norm or whatever. Yep. So, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because who you are is always changing. Right. Yes. Right. Based on your your, your surroundings changing. and experiences. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I just mean like a, from the like boot camp standpoint. I mean, they break you down. Yeah. Like 
Yeah. Ever I mean, watch the videos? No. Okay. The videos are funny. You should watch the videos between like difference between the army and the, and the Marine Corps, but you know, <laughs> it's fine. You guys, you guys went to boot camp. Okay. <laughs> Nothing against the army, or anything, but like your boot camp was not. It, yeah. It was like six weeks or something like that. I like, my cute. boot camp <laughs> was about four and a half days. Four and a half days. Nice. I just dude. went through. Jean Claude Van Damme was my okay. sergeant Sweet. guy, and they're just Same. like, dude, you're like the most high speed dude ever. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I had like a perfect PT score. Yeah, and I was just like shooting perfect. Yeah. They're just like, do you want to like be sergeant major of the army? And I'm like, I guess. So did, did you guys like get to use your cell phones and stuff at boot camp? No, no. Okay, what so I hell got, no. I guess they can do that now in the army. <laughs> yeah, that's the only reason why. That's the reason why I say that because in the Marine Corps, they're like, that's the first. You have to write letters. Like you guys wrote letters from yes. yeah. yeah. My dearest Agatha. Like that's how I felt writing letters like I was writing to my Civil War wife or right? something like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But no, breaking you down is like an integral part, right? Of, yeah. It has so, to happen. Yeah, of course. Army, I forget what they if they call it like red phase or whatever. I don't yes. remember. But they would call it like the shark attack, right? When yes. you first get there, it's like welcome. And they just drill sergeants. One of the few times I've almost peed my pants in life. Like I had a very strong reaction to the yelling part only. Like for some reason, the yelling I later learned, you know, in life was tied to some stuff earlier in childhood. But the yelling really, really got to me. Like everything else kind of went aside. I I remember not even being able to like make sense of the drill instructor's faces, like not seeing them because I was so focused on the yelling aspect. Really? Yes. Because they do, they circle you quietly and they don't say anything. Or at least that was my experience. They didn't say a word. They just walked around. You're sitting on your duffel bag. You get on the bus. They just tell you to, you know, put your head down. You're not allowed to look at where you're going. And uh, it's really quiet. And then you get off the bus and it's just... Yep. Oh, hell yep. opens in front of you. So, do you guys get yeah. to sleep in the army? Like, did they at boot camp? Like, like how many days did they like, keep did you? Did we awake? ever sleep? No, no, no. Like, how many days did they keep you up when you first got there? So, I remember I arrived at night. I was like yep. a 6, 7 p.m. arrival. Yeah. We went to bed at like 3 a.m. and then they came in with the trash cans at 345. 3:45. So, like 45 minutes the first Four. night. I think they kept us up for four days <sighs> before we finally got to sleep because it's like they keep you up and they're like, oh, hey, paperwork. Yeah. Dude, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They hit us with a fire alarm the first few nights. Yep. I don't remember how much sleep we got, but I knew I knew that it wasn't much. And then you get your boot camp picture taken on like day three of no sleep. Oh, yep. That's, that's the one that's hanging. Picture. That's the one that was like hanging around town so everybody could see it. I'm like, of all pictures that I had, you pick that one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But I don't oh. think when you're not sure of who you are, I just wonder how many people bring their own issues that they don't even know that they have into the military. Yep. And then just take out deployments, take out combat stuff alone. But you go to boot camp, you are now kind of manufactured into being something else. Mm -hmm. And then you're surrounded, hopefully, if you had a positive experience, you're surrounded by people you would consider to be your brothers and sisters. Yep. You now have a sense of belonging and of community and maybe of some of the things that you lacked when you initially joined. And then you get out. <laughs> and everybody's everybody's yeah. separated. It's like, yeah. bye. Yep. Yeah. My wife and I were just talking about that. I was like, man, I really miss going in the barracks and three doors down and you're at your, your best friend's room or whatever. And you're eating mm-hmm. pizza and playing yeah. Call of Duty or whatever. One of my buddies, I, I would go see him. He lives out of state. And... Every once in a while, we'll go camping at my family's cabins up north and like, well, not really not camping. We'll just go stay in the cabins, but they'll all come up there. A couple of other guys will come up there. And one of my buddies, he's a Marine, and he would tell me, 
I get the best sleep when I'm around you guys because I feel safe again. Yeah. Yep. And I haven't felt safe since I came home. And that's something too that I also kind of felt because I, you know, I hadn't been around some of these guys in over a decade. And whenever you get together, it's like you saw them yesterday. Yep. Yep. <laughs> There's just an understanding like, yo, if you're in my town, you are sleeping out at my place. Right. Like you're not going to stay at a hotel. <laughs> There's just that accepting because of how deep that relationship is, which is one of the beautiful parts of yeah. the military that yes. I appreciated the most. Absolutely. But also one of the hardest things for me to let go of. Yeah, that's definitely the hardest, yeah. hardest part. But one of the other things before we get closer to wrapping this up that I wanted to go back to that you mentioned earlier. You talked about earlier interventions being so important. Yeah. How? Where do you even start? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. So right now, schools are kind of the first place where things get identified and that first red flag gets thrown up. So schools are kind of the starting point for resources, but they're getting burned out and they're getting burned out quickly. And so when we see the early intervention happen, we see treatment times be shorter because you're attacking the issue at an earlier time. So the symptoms at that time are ideally lessened. You're, you know, you're getting in there quicker. It's like with a car, you know, you're going to do tunes up and fix up. You're not going to wait for it to fall apart. You know, you got to kind of do the maintenance work. And so with early intervention, it's really about identifying quickly that people are suffering and getting them the help early on. We don't do that as a society, especially when it comes to mental health. We wait for the breakdown, which is really interesting because we don't do that in other avenues. If a diabetic is going through a diabetic shock and they're starting to struggle, we jump in as soon as we recognize that. If someone's going through a panic attack, we wait for the panic attack to be done and for it to be a week later where they're completely done to really jump in and realize that an issue's happened when we had that presenting opportunity earlier. So early intervention really needs to be pushed more to the front because the sooner we identify these issues and the sooner we can help make things better for people, the lesser they're in treatment, the earlier they have their skills, the better quality of life they're going to have for a longer period of time. So it really is, but it's hard especially because we have to remember there is still that stigma. So some things that look, from my professional opinion, that are very clearly a symptom of mental health, other people may completely disregard. So I also have to take that part of it into consideration. But yeah, the earlier, the better with everything when it comes to mental health. Well, that and people, all, some people I feel like now kind of really, they take real mental health disorders and they say that they have them. Yes but they don't. Yes. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just bipolar. I'm sorry, I just yeah. got OCD. I'm like, you kind of just throw, I mean, and if you do and you're, and that's how you're trying to destigmatize what you're dealing with, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time it seems like somebody almost is glorifying having one of these disorders and they want to say that like, oh, I have this problem. Mm -hmm. Do you see that often? Do you think that that's a thing? Do you think that's a problem or I, no? So I do see it. A huge inflation thanks to TikTok of people self-diagnosing, deciding they have A, B, C, and D. I completely stay off of TikTok because of the increase in 
TikTok therapists is what I call them. So, oh, I match my socks according to shade. So I have ADHD. I have the DSM right here that is not in here. Just kind of like those things where like there, I've got this, I've got that is also really dangerous because if someone's looking to you for inspiration or guidance and you claim to have a mental health disorder that you don't have and they really believe that you have it and they start implementing the strategies and things that you're giving off and you're not trained, you don't know where you could lead that person. And so, yeah, we are. We're seeing a huge increase in people saying, oh, I have this, I have that, I'm this, I'm that. And again, double-edged sword, great that you're willing to talk about it and be so full frontal and bring it up. That's awesome. But we also have to protect how we're doing that so that it doesn't become like a mockery, a crutch or something that gets completely twisted. And we've worked so hard to get here to this point. Is that common? Do, do do people commonly do that? Will you have patients like, yeah, I think I'm I'm have major depression. Oh, all like, the time, all the really? time. People come in and tell me already what they have, what they've been, what they are, and I'm like, oh, so who's the last professional that saw you that gave you? The, oh, well, I just know. Oh, okay. And then you navigate them. So, are there people that fake mental health to like? I don't know what benefits come. You know what I mean? Like, do people fake having mental health? In my experience, sometimes people will exaggerate or remove symptoms if there is a benefit to them on the other end that is financial Mm -hmm. or like highly emotive. So Uh. it really wavers. Typically, to the trained eye, you can identify that stuff pretty early on, and it's very hard to maintain. So anyone who does come in trying to present a certain way, you're going to get identified pretty quickly. But it does happen. Yeah. That's good to know that there was a – being blind is not the only thing that people fake, right? Mm -hmm. So I was at the Oktoberfest in Mantino. Yeah. um, And I was there with my family, and I'm I'm having a beer or whatever. And this guy comes up, and he goes, no fucking way. And I was just like, what's up? Right. And he like points at my glasses and my cane. He goes, dude, the glasses and the cane, like, are you, are you really blind? And I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, dude, I use that all the time to pick up chicks. And I was like, okay, cool. And the only, (laughs) the only thing that made that okay was that he probably bought like my group, like 50 drinks, like the tickets, you know, like that's the only reason why that was okay. I mean, it's not okay. Yeah. But it sounds like a TV show. Like that doesn't sound like something that would actually happen in the real world. Like somebody would walk up to you and say like, oh, do this to pick up chicks. And you're supposed to be like, that's cool. Right. Let's bond over that. Good talk, man. And the, right. the the person he was with, you could you could just feel her uncomfort. Yeah. Like oh. you could just feel it Secondary oozing out of her. If you were with somebody that did that, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I don't oh. and it, it's just like it, it sucks that like people do that. Yeah. And it, it and I guess they do it in mental health too. Yeah. And it's a, it's a shame because yeah. it really is it's a real problem. Right. And like people are already afraid to talk about that problem. Mm-hmm. Why make fun of it? Why right. Man, it's just right. Nah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, so before we end on a high note, my friend Brad, do you have any other questions? I'm good, yeah. Melanie, if anybody listens to this and they want to reach out to you, would you recommend that they reach out to our page? Would you prefer them to reach out to you? How would you like them to reach out to you? Sure. There's several different ways to communicate with me. They can do it through the page. I am listed on psychology today. I'm also listed on therapy.com. I'm also on the EMDR website for people who are looking to have that modality. Um, I'm part of Life Stance, which is newer out here in Kankakee County. We're located in Bourbon A. So I'm, I'm very much out there in the community. People have several different ways they can get a hold of me. 
I'm here. I'm available. We really, <laughs> really appreciate you being here. So Absolutely. thank you again. Thank you, thank you so much. Me. And just be on the lookout as uh, Melanie will probably continue as long as she's able and willing to uh, be posting up little things all over our social media as far as tips, tricks, things to be aware of when it comes to your mental health. I'm sure we'll have her on here quite a few more times. <laughs> and it's just, I, again, can't tell you how much of a unicorn again you are to me. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be here. Absolutely. So thank you for that. It's my so, pleasure. <laughs> so to end on that high note, the note, excuse me, the story that I found today that I wanted to share briefly that I found via a meme as I get all of my information, but I did look into it and it was true. Uh, in 2014, Cristiano Ronaldo, famous soccer player, was asked to donate his cleats for a charity auction benefiting a 10-month-old child that was suffering from a brain disorder. So Mr. Ronaldo instead decided to pay the whole surgery, and then he gave the kids the cleats so he wouldn't have to sell them. Nice. I love when athletes do shit like yeah, that. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I love when athletes do stuff like that. It always and, and it happens more often than you realize. Yeah. Because it's just not, they don't really make a big deal about it, which is yeah. a beautiful thing to me. But from the uh, I'm Fine crew again, Brad and Melanie and I, thank you very much for being here. Huge thank you to Lamore Media for helping produce and edit this podcast. Don Cruz for the intro and outro music and CP Arts and Graphics for our logo. Remember that we here love you unconditionally. And we strongly, strongly urge you to do the same. So thank you for tuning in and we will talk to you soon.